In the middle of Parshas Re'eh, in the beginning of Parakid Gimel, we learn about the concept of a Navi Sheker, a false prophet. The Torah describes the phenomenon, Kiyakum Bekirbacha, Navi Acholem, Chalom, if somebody who seems to be a prophet or someone who's dreaming and predicting the future, and they give you even signs, Nasan Elcha Os Omofes, and it happens, and based on that, they tell you, they try to lead you astray to worship other gods, to worship Avodah Who, Of course, you should ignore this Navi, this prophet. But of course, this is just some kind of a test. But certainly you should ignore this. This is a false prophet and he's taking you down a road uh, in a path of spiritual uh, destruction. This Parsha, in addition to the halachic issues which are discussed and very fascinating, but also raises two interesting and very, very basic questions that the Mafarshi Hapshat try to deal with it. And that is, number one, if the person is in fact a false Navi, he's a Navi Sheker, so then why is he referred to as a Navi at all? It seems to be by definition, if he's false, he's not a Navi. So what, what is going on? Uh, and a second question, which we'll try to address as well, which is, the Torah does seem to say that he will have an os or a mofseis, he'll be able to give you and show you signs and wonders. Well, why would Hashem, why would uh, Hashem give the person, this false prophet, the power to do that, when obviously he's using that for negative intentions? So starting with the first question, why is he called a Navi? In fact, he's not at all. He's just a charlatan. He's a faker. So, in fact, that is the position of Rabbeinu Bachai. Rabbeinu Bachai says he is a charlatan. He is a faker. There is no powers. And, in fact, the Torah is just using the term Navi because that's what he refers to himself. Since he calls himself a Navi, he projects that he himself is a Navi. So the Torah describes this person who presents himself as a Navi, but, in fact, is a Navi Shaker. However... Many other Rishonim assume that, in fact, he's called a Navi because he may actually possess some kind of powers. Uh, notably, the Ramban says that this person may actually have uh, what we might call a natural talent to predict the future. Maybe like a psychic or somebody who has actual powers, not necessarily a fraud, says Ramban. He has actual powers to predict the future. Nevertheless, says Ramban, he is considered a Navi Sheker because he does not acknowledge that the source of his abilities come from Hashem. And he's obviously also using them for very negative consequences and intentions. And in that sense, he's Sheker. But he's called a Navi, says Ramban, because in fact he may actually have some type of power. It's very interesting, Machloket, between Barabena Bachaye, among others, and the Ramban, among others. Now, moving on to that second question, which is why would the Torah describe twice about he gives you an os or a moface, and then all of a sudden now you don't know what to do? Uh, you know, why would Hashem give somebody who's in fact. Uh, he has these ill intentions, why would Hashem allow him to have some kind of an os or a mofes? So, Ibn Ezra, among others, actually denies it. He says, no, of course not. He doesn't have actual powers, similar to what Rabbi Bechai said before. He doesn't have actual powers, he's not an actual prophet. Rather, Ibn Ezra has a number of suggestions, but his first is that maybe he overheard a real Navi predicting something in the future, and in that sense he kind of steals, he piggybacks off of the real Navi's a prediction, and then he also kind of pretends that he has that prediction, that he has that knowledge on his own, and therefore tries to use that knowledge to steer you in a bad direction towards 
Avodah So if he got anything right, it's just because perhaps, suggests Eben Ezra, he overheard an actual uh, real Navi. Abar Benel also assumes that it's just kind of some, some kind of smoke and mirrors, but not an actual Osir Mofes. And the Abar Benel actually says you could be Medayik that in the Pasuk, because it says that Venosan Elecha Osir Mofes, he will give you a sign or a wonder. It does not say Vaasa, and he will make. And the Abarbanel is Medayik, he infers from here that in fact, it's all in the presentation. He has, you know, fast hands, he can make it appear that something's going on, even, perhaps even some kind of a magic with his hands, but not that he's actually changing uh, nature and changing the Derech That's something only a real Navi could do, and that's why it just says Venasan. He makes it appear, he presents it to you, but not that he actually did anything. So the first approach is basically, despite the fact that it says Osamofes, there isn't really anything, certainly not the way a real Navi would have. On the other hand, Rashi, at least implicitly, seems to assume that there really is, and in fact, some kind of a supernatural power that this person has. And Rashi just teases out and develops uh, what is already, I guess you could say, implicit in the Pasuk. And Rashi says, Why would Hashem give this person uh, this kind of a power? To make some kind of a supernatural sign, as the Pasuk then continues and says, because in fact Hashem is testing us. Ramban develops this idea and explains, consistent with what he says in other places in the Torah, that the purpose of a test is in order not to give Hashem knowledge, will we pass the test or not. Hashem doesn't need confirmation. Hashem knows where our heart is and Hashem knows even what we'll do in the future. Rather, the purpose of the test is for the one who actually is being tested. It's to our benefit. By resisting the Navi Sheker, despite his parent powers, and steadfastly remaining loyal to Hashem, then we become more aware of our own attachment and love to Hashem, and this will actually impact and benefit us in the future. So for our benefit, Hashem is testing us. Interestingly, the Rambam in the third, para, third section of Moron of Uchim denies that uh, the Navi Shekhar would have any actual power, but whatever he's, act- whatever he's doing with his sleight of hand or his predictive abilities, but Ram- Rambam also thinks it's for the purpose of a test, but Lashita so, the Rambam thinks that what's the purpose of these tests, whether it would be Avram, Avinu, and Bereshis, or the Jewish people now, that is to show other people, in order to, so to speak, boast. Hashem, so to speak, wants to kevel, he wants to be able to boast about his beloved children, the Jewish people, and look to the world. You see, look, the Jewish people, despite uh, somebody being having some kind of a powers, or appearing to have powers, the Jewish people remain steadfastly loyal. So these were shown in Rashi, Rambam, Ramban, assume that there is some kind of a power, on some level, or at least an appearance of one, but it is done to test us. After commanding Am Yisrael to destroy all the vestiges of the Avodah Zarah when they enter Eretz Yisrael, Moshe then turns to informing them about what the rules will be for their own Avodah, for the Avodah Hashem, in what ways that will be different. And one of the dramatic differences the Torah describes for us in the first half of Dvarim in Perak Yudbet, where the Torah tells us in Pasuk Dal, Lo sasun kein Hashem. You won't do this to Hashem. And Rashi explains, you won't be able to just offer karbonos, sacrifices, anywhere you want, the way you could have for the Avodah Zarah. But rather, Ki im el hamakom asher yifcha Hashem alokeichem mikol shiftechem la sum es shemo sham. There'll be a specific place, the place, where Hashem will choose, 
that's the place where you have to seek out and come there when you want to worship Hashem. The Hevesem Shama, you have to go there to that place to bring your various sacrifices, Olusechem, Vizivchechem, etc. And this is a pronounced theme where we see that we are centralizing and focusing Avodas Hashem in contradistinction to the Avodah Zarah, which took place in a very haphazard and dispersed way. The theme continues a little bit later in the Perak in Pasuk Yeralef, which is the beginning of the Sheni Eliyah. There will be a specific place, in that place which Hashem chooses to dwell. There, Shama Tivyuas Kol Asher Anochim Etzavaschem Olosechem Zivchechem etc. That's where you will bring your kabbonos. That's where you will offer and serve Hashem. Pasuk Yud Gimel Hisham Lachav Pentalal Loschav Chol Makom Asher Etzreh. But do not, do not just bring kabbonos wherever you are or do whatever you want. A little bit later, Pasuk Yud Zayin again. The theme repeats. Losucha Lechol Bisharecha. We're talking about Meiser Sheni and things like that. You can't just eat them wherever you want. You can't them eat it. You can't eat them in your house. But rather, ki'im lifnei Hashem alokecha tochelanu, but rather, specifically before Hashem, you bring them to Yerushalayim, b'mokam asher yivcha Hashem, in that place where Hashem will choose, alokecha, atu vincha, etc., etc. It's in that place that Hashem will choose. So we have this very pronounced and repeated theme, clearly very important, which is that of centralized worship. Many, many different things characterize and are rejected in terms of Avodah Zarah, but one of which, one of which we might not have thought of, honestly, is the idea of Avodah Zarah apparently being much more haphazard, and now that you're going to be going into Eretz Yisrael, and eventually you're going to be building a base of Migdash, there will be a more centralized focus. And this is actually contrasted not only with Avodah Zarah, but also uh, before you had that, you also had things like Bamos and things like that, where even within legitimate... Uh, you know, Judaism, you were able to bring offerings and serve Hashem in various places. But once that centralized place is created, then forever and ever that it becomes the location. And this really begs the question, why is it so important? You know, it's not just that we have a centralized location. It's clear from the psukim that we read, repeated over and over again, this is a strong emphasis of the Torah, a strong foundational principle of Yiddishkeit, that there's a centralized location such as the Beis HaMikdash. Why is that so important? What is the goal, what are the aims of such a focus? Again, to some extent, living in a culture with shuls, the Mikdash Ma'at, perhaps on some level we take it for granted, but nevertheless, it really begs the question, given that the Torah clearly is emphasizing it, why? What is so important about having centralized religious worship? So, in a very beautiful presentation here in this parak, Rav Shem Shreifal Hirsch actually suggests that there are two separate but interconnected goals. One we could call uniformity of practice, and the other is the unity or the achtos of the nation. First, in terms of the uniformity of practice, Rav Hirsch notes that by forcing Am Yisrael to converge on a central location, to use the words of Rav Hirsch, that underscores that God can only be found by devotion to all of the traditional laws handed down by God to the nation. In other words, by saying that there's this one special place, the place of the base of Mikdash, it highlights that there are specific rules which are crystallized and symbolized by that makom, just like Hashem chose that makom, He also gave us very specific traditions and laws. As opposed to if there would be a nation that would be totally spread out, which could easily splinter into various cliques, each developing their own practices and beliefs, and that would be reinforced because they're only with their same people. And then who knows how many different religions, so to speak, how many different practices of Judaism we could have. It could be completely splintered, unfortunately. And therefore, to make sure that Judaism stays true to its roots, and that whatever Yiddishkeit you're practicing, wherever you live, 
but it still has to be true and consistent with the Torah. And by having a centralized location that at least three times a year you have to come back to, that's a way of reminding yourself and setting the standard. In other words, diversity is great, but it must be anchored, it must be balanced by the counterweight of the gold standard, of an official standard, of a standard, represented by the central location of the base of Mikdash. So that's one goal, says Refersh. He says there's a second goal as well, and that is not so much about the Avodah Hashem staying legitimate, but the people themselves remaining unified. Another problem that could have emerged without a centralized location, if everything was only localized, that we would lose our overall sense of octus. It would be completely diluted. Everyone doing their own thing, always with your own people, and that clearly would create a factionalism. But having a centralized meeting point, which is obligatory for everyone, at least a few times a year, but having that shared and common focus, that center point gets elevated above every individual group and draws everyone towards this unifying force and process. A shared common goal, a shared common focus helps transcend individualism or factionalism and the whole thereby can hopefully become greater than the sum of its parts. When you have two different, let alone 12 different, but you have two different groups, each one could go their own direction. But imagine the bottom of a triangle. If you have the two foundations, they're parallel, they could go on but without each other. But if you have that centralized meeting which is above both of them, that serves to anchor them to unify them in a common goal that is above and transcends either of them individually. And therefore, it says, first, there really are two different values which are highlighted and hopefully affected by the centralized base of Mikdash focus. Number one, uniformity of practice. We have a standard which we know we have to keep. And number two is a sense of achtos of the nation. It's worth noting that in this parak and in other places in the Torah, there's all, right after we talk about the centralized location, there's always connected themes of centralized worship with unity and social justice. And I think this also highlights and supports these two ideas, these twin ideas that Hirsch is trying to focus on. Parshas Re'eh begins with the dramatic and vivid laying out of two very stark and very different options that are presented to the Jewish people. God says, I'm giving before you both blessing and curse. The bracha will be, The blessing, if you listen to the mitzvos, if you don't listen to the mitzvot, If you abandon me, you go after other gods, then you get the curses, the klala. So we have presented at the opening, of the, in the outset of the Parsha, two very different options, that of blessing and that of curse. Interestingly, in the opening of the Medrash Rabbah on our Parsha, that's in Devar Rabbah, Parsha Dalin, Chazal seemed to think that at least on its face, it's not clear what the purpose of these psukim are. In fact, perhaps these are ominous. God is telling us about curses, almost trying to scare us or intimidate us. What is the intent of laying out these two stark options with such a strong possibility for being cursed? So in implicit uh, reaction to this problem, the Medrash tells us, Amar HaKadosh Baruch Lo l'ra'asam nasati lehem brachos v'klolos I'm not doing this, says Hashem, for your ill. I'm not doing this to scare you, to intimidate you, to do anything bad to you. Rather, Rather, Hashem says, 
in the words of the Medrash, I am doing this for you so that you should realize that the way of mitzvos is the way that's paved for blessing. And the way of averos is the one that will lead you to terrible curses and punishment and suffering. After all, as the Pesukim continue, by conflating blessing and mitzvos, curses and sins. And what the Medrash seems to be getting at is that the educational purpose that the Torah is employing here is simply one of giving us proper motivation. In other words, as we do with sometimes young children, sometimes older children, we incentivize people. We do this with adults as well, in work and other places. We incentivize people. Hashem is saying, listen, I could have just given you Torah and mitzvot and said, go for it. But instead, I'm telling you, there's brach associated with one, there's klala, God forbid, associated with the other, and it's a way of incentivizing us, and in that sense, helping us, by telling us that if you do the mitzvot, which any way Hashem wants us to do, if you do the right thing, you'll get rewarded. A lot of times in life, we have to do the right thing, even though it comes at an expense, even though it's difficult. So the Medrash is stressing that Hashem's telling us, here you get two for the price of one. You're doing the right thing, and it's for bracha. And therefore, that's what the Medrash means, I think, when it says, I'm not doing this in any way to scare you, intimidate you, or punish you. On the contrary, I'm doing this to incentivize and hope that you'll do the right thing. In the next section of the Medrash, uh, this theme is somewhat continued and augmented in the name of Rabbi Levi. He says, what is this comparable to? Shamrlo Rabo, if a, uh, a certain master says to his servant, Hare Monique Shelzahav. Here I'm giving you this kind of a bracelet or necklace, some kind of a chain of gold. If you do the right things, it's going to be this beautiful jewelry. Vimlo, but if you don't do the right thing, you don't listen to me. Hare Kabolim Shelbarzel. It's actually going to be like golden handcuffs. This is what God means when He says to the Jewish people, If you'll do what I want, you'll do my will. You'll get the blessing and the good. You'll get the curse. You have two paths before you. Etc. Etc. And here the matter seems to be underscoring not only the same point, but perhaps an additional subtle point that the source of the blessing and the source of the curse is the same thing. They're not two different things. It's the Torah itself. The Torah itself could be the source of blessing, and the same Torah can be the source of curse. It's not so much innately in the Torah. The Torah itself is not blessing or curse. The Torah, in a certain sense, is parv. If you do what the Torah says, then it itself becomes the source of blessing. But it itself, if you don't listen to it, can be the source of curse, the golden handcuff. And this is an interesting observation that the Medrash feels the need to underscore, that it's not that there's two separate, so to speak, forces, but rather it's the same force. It's the Torah itself, which can be the source of blessing and curse. And last but not least, in the next section of the Medrash, we have a statement in the name of Rav Chagai, who says, Lo'od shenasati lechem Not only have I incentivized you, not only have I told you that this very Torah that I'm giving you can go in either direction, and I've incentivized you to hopefully pick the right thing. But more than that, says Hashem, El I've put, so to speak, my finger on the scale. I've let you know which way I want you to go. I've told you to choose life, which is, of course, a pasuk that comes towards the end of Sefer 
Dvarim. In other words, I am helping you, I am incentivizing you, I am helping you, I'm on your side, I'm rooting for you, so to speak. I want you to choose life, I want you to choose blessing. So here we have a very interesting combination of three midrashim, all of which try and explain the outset of the psukim in our parsha, which again at first blank, the first blush seemed to be very standard. We've seen this type of idea, and we will continue to see it th- throughout Dvarim, uh, presenting the, so to speak, proverbial two paths. But yet, the Midrashim, in three successive statements, point out that Hashem is incentivizing us. He is telling us that Torah itself can go in either direction. It's up to us. He's empowering us. And He's also rooting for us by giving us that extra push, telling us which way He wants us to go, which way He hopes it turns out, Three very interesting interconnected ways that Chazal bring extra depth to the opening sukkim in our parsha. When we think of dietary laws, we usually associate that with certain foods which are allowed or not allowed to be eaten. However, there is a subcategory of dietary laws in the Torah which relate to where certain foods are allowed to be eaten or not allowed to be eaten. This comes up in Parshas Re'eh in Parak Yudbeis, where we learn about certain foods such as the Ma'aser Sheni, the second tithe, or the Bikurim, the first fruits, and a few other things, which can only be eaten in Yerushalayim. And when the Torah describes this halacha, the requirement to eat these foods specifically and exclusively in the holy city of Yerushalayim, the Torah tells us, in Perak Yud Beis, Pasuk Yud Zayin, Lo sucha le'echol bisharecha. You cannot eat these foods in your homes, in your cities, bisharecha. Ma'asar de'gancha, v'siroshcha, v'yitzarecha, u'b'choros b'karcha, v'tzonecha, v'chol nedrecha, sh'atidor, nidvosecha, u'trumas yadcha, etc., etc. And these, as Rashi explains, are allusions to Ma'asar Sheini, and Bikurim, as we mentioned, also a commandment for the Kohanim, who eat the firstborn of the kosher animals, the Bechor Behemoth Tahora. They also have to eat those in Yerushalayim. <coughs> and this is the halacha that is communicated in this pasuk. But a striking, however, is the way the Torah communicates this requirement. Lo suchal le'echol. You cannot eat these foods in your homes outside of Yerushalayim. And Rashi, quoting from Chazal, is immediately sensitive to the problem with this formulation. Because lo suchal literally means you are not able. But, of course, as Rashi quotes from Yeshua ben Charcha, yochol ata, of course we can, we have free choice, we can eat anything wherever we want. Who's stopping us? Of course we have free choice, it's possible, we're capable of eating these foods in a place where we're not supposed to, in our homes. We're capable, yochol ata, says Rashi, aval, ein charashai, but, of course, what it really means is not that you're not capable, you're not able, of course you're able, of course you're capable, but you're not permitted, you're not allowed to eat them in your homes, you must eat them in Yerushalayim. And in order to support the way this type of wording is used, Rashi quotes from a pasuk that describes about how the Jewish people were told that they are not allowed to attack the Yevusi who live in Yerushalayim, and there the, the, uh, the Navi tells us in Sefer Yehoshua, that the children of Yehuda were unable to drive them out. And here also Rashi quotes, they were able, 
But in fact, they were told that they weren't allowed to because Avram had entered into a bris, a covenant, when he took the Maras HaMachpela, and therefore the Yavusi was considered uh, off-limits for the Jewish armies. Okay, that answers the grammatical question. The fact that lo suchal or lo yuchal can actually mean uh, you're not allowed, not just that you're not able. However, it really, of course, begs the question, why would the Torah or the Navi in that instance, but why would the Torah and our Parsha, more importantly and more relevantly, why would it phrase it in such a confusing way? If it really means you're not allowed, then just tell me I'm not allowed. Why say I'm not able or imply that I'm not able, which of course is not true. So Rav Meir Bloch, the Telzer Rosh Hashiva, and an incredible thinker in Baal Musar, explained, and this is quoted in the Sefer Pinei Das, which is a collection of his insights, on the Parshish HaShavua. So he explains that this formulation of the Torah is actually underscoring a very profound idea in Musr and in Avodah Hashem. And that is the idea that really, Aliba de Emes, a person should feel that they cannot sin. It should be impossible to you. Just like if someone were to ask you to jump off the roof of a tall building, your response would be, I can't, because you know you would die if you did so. Of course, you could, but because it would be so terrible, it's just inconceivable to you. So you, you say, I can't, and you physically couldn't. <laughs> Someone could force you, Rahman but you couldn't do it because of what would happen. Says Rabloch, that is the way a person should feel when it comes to violating the commands of the Torah. To violate a tzivoy of Hashem, a tzivoy of the Torah, by rights, we should be unable. Because how could we possibly do it? Similarly, there are lots of things that we might do if no one else was watching. If we knew that we could get away with it, no one would know. But if someone was watching, if someone was there, we wouldn't do it, either because we're afraid or we're embarrassed. So too, says Rablach, we should have that feeling when it comes to observing the Torah or, God forbid, violating the Torah. A person should realize that, in fact, they're never alone. Shivisi Hashem Hashem is always there. Hashem is always watching. And just like you couldn't bring yourself to do something if someone else, another human being, was in the room, really, by rights, if we really, really believed and really inculcated and internalized this idea of Hashem always there, then we would be unable to sin. In fact, this is, on the one hand, from a theological, philosophical perspective, elementary, ABCs of a believing in an all-knowing, all-powerful God. At the same time, of course, we all realize that it's very elusive on a human level to maintain this level of awareness of Hashem. And this is why in the famous Gemara in Masech Tabrachos, Kavches Ahmed Beis, when Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai is on his deathbed and his children, his students, excuse me, asked him for a blessing, for a bracha, he said to them, that your fear of heaven should be as if you're fearful of the reputation that you have in the eyes of other people. His students were expecting something much loftier and inspiring. They were totally underwhelmed by his bracha, and they asked him, That's it? You can't give us anything better other than that we should fear Hashem like we fear other people? And he responded, <laughs> You could reach that level where you fear Hashem, like you fear your reputation in the eyes of other people. Just like we'd be scared or embarrassed to do something if we knew other people were watching, we'll find out. We must remember that Hashem is always watching. And if we can inculcate that very simple but clearly difficult idea in 
internalize that and really believe it, then in fact it will be lo suchal. We will be unable to sin. The source for the mitzvah da'oraisa of giving tzedakah is located towards the end of Parshas Re'ei. The Rambam and his Sefer HaMitzvos, the Sefer HaChinuch, and others identify the Pasuk in Perak Tezvav, Pasuk Ches, where we read, Ki Pasoach Tiftaches Yodcha Lo, you should surely open your hand to a poor person, Vahavei Ta'avitenu Demachsero Sher Yechsar Lo. You have to open up your hand, and you'll grant him enough for what he is lacking. And that opening of the Pasuk, Ki Pasoach Tiftach, you shall surely open Es Yodcha, according to these Rishonim, including the Rambam and the Sefer Achinuch, is the source of the mitzvah of giving tzedakah. Interestingly, other Rishonim identify a Pasuk that just comes two Pesukim later as actually being the source in Pasuk Yud, where we say, Nason Titein Lo, you shall surely give him. I'm not sure if there's any practical difference between which Pasuk serves as the source, but everyone agrees that from here, this section in Parshish Re'eh is the source of the mitzvah da'araisa of giving tzedakah. What's fascinating is that in the Sefer HaChinuch's formulation of this mitzvah and his commentary to our Parsha, the Sefer HaChinuch says that the mitzvah is Lasos Tzedakah, Imat Sarach Eleha, you have to give tzedakah, give charity to someone who needs it, Basimcha Ubatuv Levav, with a very happy and pleasant disposition. And it certainly sounds like from the Sefer HaChinuch that it's not just giving, but your attitude towards the poor person is actually part of the mitzvah itself. Not just a bonus, not just a hidur, but actually part of the mitzvah. Now, this is perhaps sharpened when we contrast this with the Rambam, who both in the Sefer HaMitzvos and in his Mishneh Torah and Hechos Mat does not do that. The Rambam just says, Mitzvah Asei, Litein Tzedakal, Yisrael. You should give tzedakah to a poor person as much as you can afford. Now it's true that the Rambam does eventually in Hechos a few halachos later, after he's originally defined the mitzvah, eventually the Rambam does get around to saying that it's very important to give tzedakah with a positive attitude. But the fact that the Rambam separates those sounds like for the Rambam, that's a bonus, a cherry on top, a hidur. It's an important thing, but it doesn't define the mitzvah. It's not part of the essential definition. However, it's just striking that at least in contrast, it seems clear that according to the Chinuch, uh, having that positive attitude and that pleasant disposition is not just a bonus, but in fact may be a critical and essential part of the mitzvah itself. Even though giving tzedakah is unquestionably a mitzvah from the Torah, as we're all familiar, it is not one of the mitzvahs that we make a bracha on, which begs the question, how come, despite it being a mitzvah from the Torah, why shouldn't we make a bracha on it? In other words, we should say, to give tzedakah before we actually give the charity. How come it doesn't have a bracha like so many other Mitzvos. So there are two common answers and explanations suggested by the Rishonim. The most well-known one is suggested by the Rashbah. And he says the reason is because we know that brachos are usually stated before a mitzvah is performed. And in this case, you can't make the bracha before you give the poor person the money because you never know, he might surprise you and decide not to accept the money. You can never be sure, you can never be 100% positive that the ani will accept the money. And therefore, since it's possible that you would offer the money and then he wouldn't accept it, as a result, says the Rajabah, mitzvahs like this where it's toli badas acherim, you're dependent on someone else, and it could be that you'll make the bracha and in the end there won't be a mitzvah, so then he says we don't make a bracha. Interestingly, the Sefer Avudraham quotes a second explanation, which is that this is the kind of mitzvah 
which is predicated on someone else's suffering. The only reason we have a mitzvah to give tzedakah is because there are poor people, people who don't have enough, people who are suffering. And therefore, if we were to make a bracha, it would almost seem as if we were celebrating their suffering because it created an opportunity for our mitzvah. Of course, that's not the case, but we are so sensitive even to that appearance, says the Avudraham, that that might be an alternate explanation for why we do not make a bracha. All of this has been about the positive mitzvah to give tzedakah. However, according to all the Rishonim, there's also a concomitant lotase, there's an accompanying prohibition to not refuse to give tzedakah when presented with the opportunity. According to the Rambam and the Sefer HaChinuch, that is from the Pasuk in Perak Tezvav, Pasuk Zayin, which is opening the section. Excuse me, if you have a poor person who's in one of your cities in your land, uh, that Hashem gives you, you should not harden your heart, you shouldn't close your hand, right, don't harden your heart, don't close your hand, you should give uh, the poor person. And according to the Rambam, the Chinuch, that is the basis of the Lotase, the Avera. Interestingly, the Ramban actually suggests, and others follow the Ramban's lead, that there are two separate Lotases, not only the one that we just read, but according to the Ramban, there's an additional one that comes uh, towards the end of the section, when we say, you should certainly give him, you shouldn't be upset, you shouldn't be resentful, you shouldn't be angry when you give him the tzedakah. So according to the Rambam and the Sefer Achinuch, there's one low ta'aseh, but according to the Ramban, it emerges that there are actually two low ta'aseh. A final point, which is very, very fascinating, and we can just touch on it, but we won't have time, of course, to do it justice, um, is that a very fascinating machlokas achronim about the nature of this lotaseh and the relationship between the positive command to give tzedakah and the negative prohibition to not renege on or not avoid uh, giving tzedakah. Rabbi Chodan Wasserman uh, suggests that, in fact, despite the fact that the Rishonim count this as an Avera, as a sin to withhold tzedakah, it's not really an Avera, at least it's not an Avera in its own right. That The Torah, suggests Rabbi Chodan Wasserman, only created this additional lav in order to strengthen and reinforce the Asei to underscore how important the assay of giving tzedakah is, to emphasize the need to give it, says Rav Hanan, therefore there is a lotase. But it's not really an independent lotase, it's just kind of a shadow support for the assay. Other achronim disagree, and they suggest that there are two parallel halachos, one the mitzvah, one the avera. And time does not permit an analysis of either of these two positions or the respective proofs, but just to be aware of this fascinating debate and this intriguing position of Rav Hanan Wasserman and others, that despite there being a lotase, it's not an independent one, rather it's just there to enforce and strengthen the assay.